Hello and welcome to ASI cast number 168. I'm Richard Marks, ASI's Research Director, and joining me today is Guy Bisson of Media Analyst Ampere. So welcome, Guy. Thank you, Richard. Now, regular listeners will know that we've been checking in with Guy over the last few years since he located to LA to get his take on the latest developments in streaming. And with Netflix announcing surprisingly good results last week, we thought it would be a good time to check in with him. So I guess the first question I've got, guys, that in the early days of streaming, Reed Hastings commented that Netflix's only competitor was sleep. That's clearly no longer the case, and competition in the streaming market is getting more and more fierce. Does this competition mean that content is going to be getting effectively more mainstream? I noticed that just last week, uh, Netflix did a deal to get the rights to WWE Wrestling, which led their chairman of film, presumably, to resign on the same day, although they may not be linked. But do we think that groundbreaking and innovative shows are going to be a thing of the past now for the streamers? I think there are, there are a lot of different um, influences on what is happening in the content business. Um, and not necessarily the competitive environment is the main driver for a shift in strategy. I think the adoption of advertising, which of course was driven by the downturn that we saw in streaming over the last 18 to 24 months, and of course the competition, is more of an influence on a, a move towards a more generalist programming agenda. I, it's, it's true to say that the streamers still have a particular focus that is noticeable, that focus, of course, is on scripted entertainment, although unscripted entertainment is becoming increasingly important to their overall strategies. And hitherto, that strategy has been driven by flagship, um, high production value dramas um, and shows. That will continue, but what we're seeing is a broadening in terms of the demographics the shows are targeting. So no longer the 18 to 35-year-old or the 24 to 35-year-old is the be-all and end-all of content strategy. We're now seeing an increasing focus on older demographics. And drama investment is going into types of content that interest and attract and retain those demographics. So I don't think we'll see an end to innovation, but we will and are seeing a broadening of focus as the services themselves become ubiquitous and thus their customer base becomes more generalist. Interesting, interesting point. There was a, a review of um, Apple's Masters of the Air in The Guardian in the UK last week that said, um, it, it feels like the end of something, a season finale to the long-running series Extravagant TV. And we know, obviously, Disney have been very open about their cost-cutting. In, in what ways do you think that cost-cutting is manifesting itself? I mean, there's obviously the opportunity to produce fewer series, less content. There's the opportunity to spend less on those series. Do you, do you think that we are at the end of extravagant TV, even for the high-end stuff? Like I think the ring, Rings of Power cost multiple tens of millions of pounds to produce for Amazon without a huge amounts of viewing. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying Masters of the Air myself at the moment and eagerly awaiting the next episode, which drops this evening. Um, but I think um, without being too negative of the Guardian's view, um, Apple was probably the wrong example to, to pick as the one who would move away from high production value sh shows. Mm. I think it's central to their strategy, to their brand, um, to the association with quality that Apple has always had. So if anyone is going to continue that very high-end show, it will be Apple. But specifically to the question, how, how does one um, get more bang for your buck, to, to, to paraphrase Netflix, um, Fewer shows is is certainly one way, and we are picking up on a very distinct downturn um, in U.S. scripted commissioning, which I think we're, we're probably address shortly. Um, but the other the other way, or two other ways, is to to begin to adopt more unscripted, which we're seeing very very strongly now. More than fifty percent of first run new commissions from the streamers are unscripted shows formats are becoming increasingly prevalent and those of course are uh, both cheap and easily adaptable to multiple uh, geographies and languages and the other thing that we've seen and talked about in the past but is very much still an ongoing trend is the move away from the us as the center of production um, to be very clear the US is still the biggest, most important, most valuable market for streaming commissioning. But um, as we've talked about in the past, now more than 50%. I think it peaked up to 60% recently of Netflix first run shows are being made outside the US. And surprisingly, the likes of Amazon, Disney um, have similar percentages that are now being made outside the US. So that's um, another way to save costs and to customize the content to the local market and broaden the appeal uh, across those different uh, target markets. You mentioned the US and I know in a recent um, a report you, you talked about the era of peak TV being over. What, what, what's meant by peak TV in the US and why, why is it over? Well, um, peak TV was really uh, a reference to the production boom that we've seen driven by streaming, driven by Netflix and driven by the, the new entrance into that market. And for more than a decade, um, we had close to exponential growth in production volumes of original new content. And that's what's fueled what has become known as peak TV, which is the very high volume of very high quality drama that is on streaming. But of course, that had a knock-on effect on everyone else in the market. So we saw pay TV providers move heavily into high-end original production and broadcasters up their game in terms of original drama. That, that was peak TV. And the end that we've seen is, is driven by some of the things that we've been talking about, the downturn in streaming, the um, reversal of opinion, I guess, of investors, particularly Wall Street investors, of the direct-to-consumer streaming model, um, and the demands that 
profitability it should be front and center of strategy rather than uh, growth at any cost mm. and so what we saw starting actually um, in 2022 so before the strikes which of course in the US are a very important factor was a downturn in commissioning volumes and that downturn has continued through 2023 and that's really what we meant by the end of peak tv but yeah that definitely makes sense and in the context you mentioned what investors are looking for was it a surprise that netflix had uh, such a good quarterly um subscriber growth figures are they does that indicate somehow they're more resilient than the streamers? Is it a result of the their ad policy or is it a result of their crackdown on passwords or or combination of those? It, it, it's, it's, it, it seemed to catch people, some people, probably not you because you're, you're analysing the stuff, but slightly surprised that Netflix as the, you know, the grand old man of streaming had done so well. Yeah, but that position as the grand old man is actually a, a a huge strength and a huge benefit to Netflix. All of the data that we see from um, consumer research and other sources that we have suggests that Netflix is the baseline service in the household. It's a much more stable part of the streaming bundle in the home than some of the newer entrants where churn in and churn, uh, churn out and churn back in or come back in is so-called boomerang behavior is much more prevalent. So that benefits Netflix, but absolutely the, the password crackdown, which for many years I, I had described as a, a the failure to crack down on password sharing as a, as a marketing expense, but also as something that created effectively a, a bar of gold on the mantelpiece, if you remember the children's fable. Um, about the farmer who found the bar of gold in his field. Um, so that combination of the crackdown and the advertising, of course, which is a churn protection mechanism, as well as a subscriber acquisition mechanism, have all come together really in this latest quarter to benefit. And do you, I mean, I don't, it's, Unfair to ask you to make predictions. Do you think that was that's a one-off, or are they going to continue to benefit from? Though you know, presumably at some point the the subscriber, um, the password cut, um, crackdown bounce will alleviate itself a bit because, I mean, the re as you say, the reason they weren't cracking down on it was to grow reach. But presumably, having done that and now making it much more. Um, hard to um, borrow passwords and things that 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 presumably will die off after a certain point. Yeah, I think that that will die off after a certain point, and that's when the advertising strategy will have to kick into full gear um, in terms of base retention, so that churn protection um, for cost sensitive customers who who, um, who are needing to make decisions about household spend um, through to um, the acquisition of, of customers that they just previously didn't touch before. So, I, yes, I, we, we, we won't, the, the, the password effect will not continue forever. That's absolutely correct. Um, but I still think Netflix remains in a very strong position among the mix of streamers within the household. 
it all, of course, does come down to their content strategy. Um, and that is the big risk factor that some uh, investors are, are questioning. Um, they, they have to continue to invest in content. And as you alluded to, they've started to move into some interesting new areas, including WWE. Um, so we'll, it, it will be very interesting to see how far in that direction they start to move, uh, especially given that uh, they previously said that they would never invest in sport, although uh, some people would argue that WWE is not a sport. Yeah, I, I was actually gonna, on my list of things to do this week was to reach out to someone in the sports industry and ask them that very question: Was it sport or reality? But <laughs> reality TV. But um, it's it's interesting that that it does seem to it seem to have, have given them a boost the move to having an ad to. There's been different ways in which different streamers have approached that. Have we got any? Any rough idea of what proportion of Netflix subscribers are on that tier now in the US or the UK? Um, we have got some estimates. I think um, it's it, it's certainly early days in terms of working out exactly how impactful that strategy has been. It looks like it's been a, a very successful or a relatively successful strategy despite the teething problems that they have expressed themselves they were having, particularly around targeting. Um, but I think going forward, given the um, we our consumer data is showing that the, the ceiling in terms of the number of services people are willing to take was reached about two years ago, i.e. The, the number of services in the household just stopped growing, the number of streaming services. That, one cannot proceed without an advertising strategy now, with the possible exception of um, very specific strategic approaches like Apple. But um, moving forward, it's going to be a core part of their growth story. Um, and overall, we think that at least six percentage points of growth in the wider streaming market in terms of the value of that market uh, will materialize as a result of advertising. Um, uh, th and that growth would not have existed without the advertising part of the equation. So while it's still the much smaller part of the overall pie, even well into the forecast period, um, it's essential for the ongoing growth of the sector. Mm. And there does do seem to be, as I mentioned, different approaches to doing it in that essentially, although, you know, over the next few years, Netflix will play around with their prices, but essentially the Netflix approach was to launch an ad tier as a discounted tier, you know, have some ads and it will be cheaper. The Amazon this month, I think, launch where basically the day the standard amazon prime package you get advertising whether you like it or not in your standard package and you pay an extra three or four pound or dollars a month to not have the advertising in other words you're opting out um as it were rather than getting a discount for the advertising being there have you got are there any thoughts about what impact that may have because 
I'm guessing they may think they're more resilient because the main motivation for many people having Prime is not the video, it's the home delivery. So that they, they, they may not be scaring as many people off. In a way, Disney did exactly that same strategy in respect that they, uh, when they brought the ad tier in, they kept the, uh, they, they, they priced it at the price that the premium had been. And then you had to pay extra to, mm effectively remove the ads so i think it's it's an evolution of strategy which is driven by the fact that the streamers at least in the usa are making more money from an ad customer than a, a non-ad customer so a premium customer is less valuable to them than an ad supported customer and so all of the the recent moves strategically around the manipulation of pricing and tiering have been to encourage uptake of the ad tier um, and i think that's the main driver for, for the, the amazon and disney approach to that pricing uh mix pricing tier mix yeah i can imagine spotify uh watching all this with interest given that you know that you can imagine that i mean it'll probably be uproar but you can imagine that there'd be an attraction to spotify of having a hybrid model of an intermediate sort of tier of pay plus adverts because at the moment it's very clearly delineated that you know it's free if you if you get adverts and paid if you don't it's um, yeah. interesting yeah. to see what they do Given, as you say, if, if advertising is seen as such a, a driver of growth in the video area, what implication that, that may have for audio streaming as well? But uh, I guess that's a whole other, a whole other podcast. But um, yeah, um, you mentioned you mentioned ad supported. The the other area that Netflix, even before ads, was um, putting a lot of effort into was games, uh, gaming. Um, what, what's been the latest developments for them on that front? I, I think it's, and, and you, you probably saw this week that, that Disney has also in, recently invested in a, in a gaming company in Epic Games. So I think games, it's funny how, how one, one streamer does something and, and others begin to follow into that sector. I think for Netflix, um, it started as a concept around the development and exploitation of intellectual property, which in a way, I mean, I keep referencing Disney, but Disney was the great um, user and strategizer around leveraging intellectual property to the hilt across multiple uh, means of exploitation, of course, encompassing merchandising, movies, streaming, shows, etc., etc. Um, I think Netflix had ambitions to develop in a similar way, on, on albeit on a smaller scale, while also shoring up a particular segment of the market, um, particularly helpful for some of the younger demographics and some of the 20s and 30s demographics which were the, the, the base of their whole business. So while I talked earlier about targeting a broader and older demographic for growth, keeping that, that core 
happy was absolutely essential and gaming was just another way to do that while also beginning to leverage the value of intellectual property that they had created from scratch through their originals program so it, it fit it was a good fit strategically for netflix um, and i think it will continue to be an important sub-segment of their business but is, is it working because I, I think initially i'd heard that you know it hadn't exactly panned out the way they'd hoped in terms of uptake in fact is that i'm a netflix subscriber and i I've never seen any mention in the Netflix app of games or where I might see these games or where they are. I only ever hear about Netflix games in business magazines. No, that, that's, a, that's a good and a, and a fair point. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly, I don't know the answer to the question, is it working for them? Um, I don't think we have enough transparency on what the... Uh, I guess what the target was when they first launched it, because they never really said, and we expect it to generate X percent of our revenue or to become a, you know, this, this scale of our business. They talked about it more in those strategic crossover terms um, that I was just talking about and, and, and leveraging IP and mm. um that that's that has benefits that are, that are not only financial in terms of creating customer engagement, uh, building fan bases um, and creating stickiness for customers who are engaged by it. But in terms of has it met their internal revenue targets uh, or indeed usage targets, I, I don't have the information to answer that. It would also be interesting to get an idea of what are these you know, high-end video games or are they more akin to the sorts of mobile games that make up a big amount of, you know, when talk, people talk, you, know, you see figures from surveys about amount of time spent playing online games. A lot of them are deliberately fairly basic stuff, aren't they, as opposed to, you know, massively, you know, $10 million interactive um immersive landscape type games but I, I guess I may not know because I, I, it occurred to me while you were talking that as a 59 year old Netflix have probably decided they're not there's no need for my my version of Netflix to mention games because they don't think I'm ever going to play them but I don't know whether they're that I assume they're that targeted but anyway um look we, we'll, we'll definitely be checking back with you later in the year if that's okay I was just wondering it's it's a bit early, bit well, a bit late in the year to be talking about the year ahead. But are there are there any things you think we should be looking out for this year that may be, you know, pot yeah, potential major things? Are, are there any? Are there's any talk of acquisitions? You know, if Netflix is doing uh, perceived to be doing well, does that make them more or less likely to be a target for a, a Microsoft or or someone like that? Or is 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 that um, at the sort of prediction that people have been making, I think for the last five years that Netflix will be bought by someone that year, but they haven't. Yeah, um, I mean, just to take a step back to the beginning of your question, what should we be looking for in this year? Um, it's certainly a pivotal year in terms of the development of the overall business. And it's pivotal because because of the slowdown that we witnessed through late 22 and in, and through 
2023 and that complete adjustment to streaming strategy both in terms of the adoption of advertising and the approach to content spend and content volume so although it's not a sort of uh, you know you know banner type thing to watch just watching how the industry comes through this phase of adjustment is going to be absolutely key this year and at what point we return never to the peaks that we saw but at what point we can return to a new stability where investors are a little more comfortable with the strategy with the outlook and with the model of streaming um, and content investment is stabilized um, and more certain in terms of the sort of volumes and investments we can expect so that's a kind of under the under the radar thing to watch in terms of MA, you're absolutely right everyone's been talking about it for years um and and paramount of course is the latest that is on uh, on the radar in terms of a potential acquisition target and there's been talk uh, of various potential buyers for that i'm not a hundred percent convinced that MA is an absolute necessity moving forward um Firstly, because I think that we're not too far away from those streaming services becoming profitable, which will take the pressure off. And secondly, because as the recent deal in the US for a combined sports service, streaming service, shows, one can combine without M&A activity. So... Again, a, a report I put out just before COVID and then COVID came along and changed everything was around the importance of streaming services, bundling and discounting. Um, and I think we, we're, we're really seeing big moves now, especially with that sports deal, which will be a fully integrated um, service in terms of cross-content navigation. Uh, as a potential way forward that does not involve full M&A. So while I'm not saying there will be none, uh, I'm not sure it's quite uh, the absolute essential that some commentators are suggesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If, if someone was saying to me earlier this week, if, if they, if the streamers do continue to sort of combine, bundle, acquire sports rights, invest in um, sort of reality and, and factual type programming as well, that haven't they just reinvented cable and satellite companies, but without the cable and satellite technology? Yeah, what, aren't they just ending up being exactly what they were the insurgents against in the first place, just that they're they're delivered via broadband, so don't need the actual sort of infrastructure that a Comcast or a Sky needed. I mean, ironically, and I think last week Sky laid off significant numbers of engineers because they're they're preparing for the inevitable full move over to streaming. It, it, it just it always seems strange to me that these companies come in as insurgents with a very well defined definition of what they are. And often end up ten years later being exactly what they were competing against because, as you said at the start, they need to 
to broaden, widen their appeal and make money. Yeah, but um, well, that wasn't really a question, was it? <laughs> no, but it, it's 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 an important point, and I I would broadly agree with with that thesis that yes, and and, and it's not just this; everything in media seems to go full circle. Um, but if you think about it, that the companies that we're talking about are the companies that provided the channels that made up the bundles on the cable and satellite services. So for them to um, return to that model in a way, you could argue they never left. The distribution changed. There was a period where that distribution involved selling content to Netflix while maintaining their linear businesses. Now those linear businesses are declining. They are morphing into the full streaming model. Um, and, and, and that looks a lot like um, the old broadcast and cable model. But I, I don't think it's a surprise, given the companies involved, that that is the direction of travel. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting, as we discussed, to see what happens over the course of the year. Hopefully we'll catch up with you um, when uh, the weather in the UK more closely matches that that you're experiencing in our way. Uh... Well, we've, um, our, our weather has been matching the UK, actually. Yeah. We've just come out of a week of torrential uh, rain here, i say. Oh, I don't know if that's reassuring or not, but it's slightly, slightly disappointing. Anyway. But in, in, in true Hollywood style, they, they call it atmospheric rivers rather than rain, so. Uh... Oh, you can't be a bit. A bit of rebranding. Anyway, good to catch up with you, Guy, and hopefully we'll catch up with you later in the year. So thanks for your time. Thank you.